All right. Well, I'm not going to try to improve upon the, the gospel presentation that, uh, that Terry did. Uh, he covered it very thoroughly, and who am I to add to that? It's God's Word, and it will, it will bring increased where it's sent. We are in, da- we are in John, Daniel. We're in John chapter 3. And we are in Lesson 7. If you are, if you have a Lesson 7, turn to Lesson 7. And we are about to hit a point E. We are on verse 15. As we look at John chapter 3, verse 15. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with these familiar verses. I want to hit on some things we may not be so clear about. But this is in the part where, where Jesus Christ is testifying and rebuking Nicodemus, the leader of the people teacher of teachers, member of the Sanhedrin and a Pharisee, and he is telling him of his necessity that he must be born again. He must be born from God, he must be born of the Spirit, and he must be changed, and he must be made new. And Nicodemus is confused, and Nicodemus doesn't understand, and Jesus is explaining to him what it means to be born again. He tells him that the Holy Spirit must blow upon you, and then when He blows, and then He will indwell. We'll talk, we talked about that in great detail, and uh, we are on verse 15. Let me read 15 through the rest of the chapter, and hopefully we will get to that. Verse 15, uh, I might as well start on <coughs> verse 10. <coughs> To give us context, chapter 3, verse 10, John. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly I say unto you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and you don't receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how am I tell you? If I tell you heavenly things, how will you believe also? No one has ascended to heaven. But he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This will start today. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil, for everyone practicing evil hates the light, doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. For he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that he has, that has been done in God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judah. There he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptized, baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you behind the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can't receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves have heard me say and bear witness that I said I'm not Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but a friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from heaven is above all. He is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He has he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God doesn't give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He believes in the Son, has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now as we continue this with Jesus' exhortation to Nicodemus, we start in verse 15. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We've said over and over and over again that why this book was written was that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in His name you may have life. So Jesus, as He witnesses and He testifies to Nicodemus, tells Nicodemus that he must believe. And we have said many times that belief has many components to it. And it is not just the intellect, although it does include the intellect. Uh, Terry talked about this this morning. We have to believe, but that belief is not just intellectual because the demons believe and they tremble. But that belief is not mixed by a God-given faith. And this faith is demonstrated in a complete trust. And it is commit, it is demonstrated by commitment. And it is, and it is evidenced, true faith is always evidenced by obedience. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus that you must believe, whoever believes intellectually and trusts with his fiducia, fiducia is a word, and trust and, and, and is committed to me, we would call this, you know, there, there was a, a, uh, and I'm going to go off a trail here for a second. There was this uh, thought, and I don't remember when it was. MacArthur was at the forefront of it. Maybe you'll remember. And it was this concept of easy believism. Ever heard of it? And it is this concept, and, and, the, and, the, and the thinking was, can Jesus be your Savior and not your Lord? And there were many in, in the liberal camp that believed that, you know, it's just believing. It's just an intellectualist sin and you can trust Him as your, as your Savior, as the Messiah, the one who came to atone for your sins, but that it, for salvation is not necessary that you would, that He would be your Lord, which is the word master, which would insinuate, because He's your master, that you would trust in Him and your life would be characterized by obedience and your life would be shown by commitment to Him. And the question uh, went throughout uh, many denominations. And uh, uh, does everybody understand that He is has to be your Savior and your Lord? You can't just rely on Him as your, as your fire insurance, as the one who is going to rescue you from hell, but you have to understand with trust and commitment and obedience, faith given by Him, that He's also your Lord and your Master, and your obligation is to be obedient and faithful, and He is to be your life. Everybody understand that? There are many who teach this, 
And uh, when I talk about you have to believe, you have to understand that it's more than an intellectual exercise, but it's a lifetime of commitment and obedience and faithfulness, and it comes from true faith, which comes from God alone. Does everybody understand that? So the answer is, yes, He has to be your Savior and your Lord. Okay? Does everybody question about that? Does anybody remember that topic from... Was that the 90s? Was that the 80s? 70s? That's 50 years ago. How would you know that? (laughs) Still being taught today. But everybody understand the necessity for a lifetime of commitment and evidence that you are Christ? It's not... Yes. He owns you, and He's bought you with His precious blood. So, I just, uh, people get it, all you got to do is believe. Well, you have to believe. That is your responsibility, but that belief has a bunch of components to it. And the evidence that it's real, and, and, and the evidence that belief is that it's lifelong. The evidence that you are in Christ is that you endure to the end because He is the one who causes you to persevere and He's the one who preserves you. You know, it tells us in John, they were of us, but they left us. And if they would have been of us, they would have stayed with us. The evidence that you are in Christ is that you... It is lifelong, okay? So I just wanted to hit that. I don't know if any of you are concerned about that, but uh, uh, there are many who just say, you just got to believe the truth about it. Yes, sir? Absolutely. Good. Thank you. And this, they take out, those who present the gospel this way, they take out, deny yourself, mm-hmm. uh, take up your cross, and follow him. Those are, those are important aspects of that that they leave out. It's just say a prayer, mm-hmm. and you're his. And that, you know, there's more to it than that. Good. Finish. And what does easy belief lead to? Works. Works? Okay. Good. Just a question. Um, and I'm not arguing with anything you say. It's just truly a question. What about uh, like the thief on the cross and dead faith conversion and things like that? Where did they... I mean, there's not evidence is all I'm saying other than just... Yeah. Well, I'd say salvation is of the Lord, and uh, He's the cause of salvation, and He it's His salvation, and uh, 
the fact that that thief said, you've done nothing wrong and that we have died justly for what we do is an evidence that God was working in his life. That's, if that, that's how I would answer your question. Any other questions? Good question? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Yes, sir. I'm going to add to that. Where's your uh, two parallel lines up there? Because I can put them up here. Because man's responsibility, I think, includes being obedient. I mean, there's proof, like she said, in, in the fruits of the Spirit. I don't know if that falls into that human responsibility. It's all part of the process. There's a the work of the Holy Spirit does set us apart. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability and and the desire to do the work, but we have to work. We have to grow. We can't just pick and choose verses out of the Bible without looking at the whole whole context. Starts out as a little grain of mustard seed, right? And we don't know how God's putting that little bitty seed in Reagan's heart or the kiddo's heart. And then he grows it, right? We don't say, ah, you're not there. That's arrogant and that's opposite of humility. We thank God for it and we pray for him and he'll grow it, right? Right. Skepticism uh, within Christianity is... uh, is uncalled for, unnecessary, and it is horribly negative to new believers, isn't it? Balance. Now, he says, whoever believes will have, we have this word, eternal life. I think you know what it is. Tell us what it is. MacArthur says, this is not just quantity of life, but it is quality of life that we can have in the present and in the hereafter. So when Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says, 
that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The eternal life He's talking about is not just living forever. I think MacArthur calls it, uh, he says it literally means life of the age to come and refers to resurrection and heavenly existence and perfect glory and holiness. We as believers experience the Lord Jesus before heaven is reached. MacArthur says its essence is participation in the eternal life of a living word. It is not fully realized until resurrection, but it is what we call sanctification. We are living eternal life in the quality. It's also referred, I came that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. They're equal terms. Eternal life is quality with Christ today as we obey His Word, live His Word as the Spirit leads us, and that is abundant life. It is a quality of life uh, for today and the blessed hope for tomorrow. And it not only refers to quantity, and this word not perish literally means perish in sins, suffer the wrath of God without Christ's atoning work. So he tells Nicodemus, you have to believe, and then you will have eternal life, and you will not perish, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, you must believe and put your faith and trust in me, and you will have quality of life, you will have surety of life. You will have hope for the hereafter life. It is not just referring to living forever and not dying. So everybody understand that? Everybody familiar with these terms? But that word not perish is basically referring to spiritual death and physical death. We're all going to physically die because of sin, but he's referring to spiritual life and not physical death. Everybody understand that? And then the phrase, the most... Uh, the most uh, easily recommended, uh, uh, recognized verse in all the Scripture, for God so loved. The evidence that God loves is demonstrated by His giving. The word so emphasizes the preciousness of the gift the preciousness of the love. And you have to come to the, to the understanding that God loves. And He demonstrates His love by His giving. And He gave His very best. God so loved the world. That's the people in the world. Okay. God loves. And you may not have been loved by your dad, you may not have had a loving family, but you can, by the assurance of this word, know that God loves. And He gave an evidence that He loves by His gift of His Son. And love is not just a, just, it's not just a feeling, but it is action. And God demonstrated His pity for people who were lost without hope that He would send His Son and He showed pity and He gave them the remedy for their sin and He gave them the ability to be reconciled to Himself through His Son. So God so loved. When you are telling people the truth about God, you focus on His love, you focus on His justice, you focus on His gift of His Son as the evidence that He loved. So if anybody here has not understood God's love, God loves. 
And He loves and He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believes. Right? Whosoever believes. We don't know who that is. We preach this call of the gospel to all men that God loves men. And you believe and you trust and you call upon His name and you will be saved. Everybody understand. Everybody's familiar with this verse. But it is a verse that gives us great hope for our lost family members. The only way is through Christ, the gift of the Father, for sins for people to atone for their sins. Everybody understand that gospel. I don't want to, I can't add anything Terry said. I just wanted to just go over this again as he told Nicodemus, God loved and he gave me. Notice how he says in the third person, Jesus speaking, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved and he sent me. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the wrath appeaser, the propitiation, the wrath absorber for His anger against us, His Son's death. Everybody understand that? Love has to be demonstrated by action, and God did that, not just in word, but in deed. And He gave the only remedy, Jesus Christ, His Son. And whoever believes... Whatever class you are, whatever background you have, you must appropriate God's saving grace by believing, right? Comments, questions. Now, verse 17. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. A lot of uh, discussion has been put on this verse Let's just say it this way. The first time Jesus came into the world as the great physician to heal and to save sinners. It's the reason He came. The first advent, He came to die for sinners, of which all of us are included. So Jesus came to die for sinners. So when it says He came not into the world to condemn the world... Literally, it means the first time He came, He didn't come for the specific purpose of condemning the world. The primary purpose of this first coming will be to save people from their sins on the cross. The second advent, when He comes again, will be specifically not to die for sinners. already done that. But the second time He comes will be for judgment, and it will be for condemnation. The second advent will be too late. There will not be a second chance. He's come. If you reject Him, you will experience His judgment and His condemnation. Now, the confusion part is is the in-between. And the, but He did come. The first time He did come, and when He came, He did confront people. And He didn't just come to bring peace. As a matter of fact, Scripture says, who's got Matthew 10, verse 40, uh, uh, 34 through 39? Somebody read Matthew 10, 34. So when He says He didn't come to condemn the world, primary purpose was to die for sinners, but... As He came and as He testified and as He, the light, exposed darkness, there is a necessary confrontation between sinners. 
And there is a sword that he brings, and that sword divides people based upon their reaction to why he came. So who's got Matthew 10, 34 through 39? Do not think that I bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus defines what it means to follow Him. As Melanie mentioned, it's not just an easy believism, but it is a, and it sets family members apart. Who in here has been set apart by the coming of Christ? And who in here can testify to the fact that it does bring a sword and it separates family members? It does. Every one of us have family members that there is a division between us and them because of the work of Christ. He came primarily not to bring condemnation, but His coming did bring trouble and a sword, and it separates. Okay? So we, so when He says, I didn't come to condemn the world, that wasn't His primary purpose the first time, but as a result of the light of the world coming into a dark world, there is confrontation, and there has to be confrontation, and there will be confrontation. So He did come, and that coming causes division. So understand that. What is well, He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save His people in the world, but His coming brings confrontation. Look at John nine thirty nine, as we see that. Uh, so, uh, does everybody understand that scripture? I look at 9.39. He also says, he's talking about true vision and true blindness as he's say Jesus pursued the blind man, and we'll talk about him when we get to it. Uh, chapter 9, Jesus said, For judgment I've come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be blind. Made blind. So, Jesus coming into the world separates men, and those who do not believe, He hardens their heart further. And He's talking about the Jews in that specific instance. But uh, we will get to that in great detail when we get to it. But His primary purpose is not to condemn, but it does bring confrontation. But the second time He comes will be for judgment and condemnation, and it will not be to save men, but it will be to give men the just rewards for their disobedience and their unbelief in Him. Everybody understand that verse? Uh, you can't just say He doesn't bring condemnation and judgment, but His coming necessarily facilitates it because who He is. And He comes into this dark world as light, and men hate that light, and they run from the light, and they don't want to be exposed by that light. That's why people hate Jesus. You can talk about God all you want, but when you bring up Jesus, that is crossing the limit, because Jesus, we're going to get into this, they hate me because I tell them their deeds are evil. 
That's why men hate Jesus and His exclusiveness that you've got to come through me. And that's the only way. And that rubs men wrongly. Okay? They hate that He is the exclusive and they hate that they can't be saved without Him. They want to be saved their own way. So Jesus is by His very being confrontational to men. Everybody understand that? Nobody that's in the first Adam will be saved. Nobody. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's amazing how much the world denies that. The, the world wants to say, oh, Jesus is just love. And they, they leave out the whole part about judgment or anything else. That's right. And it's, it's a big part of the world that's in that denial. As a Tozer, I believe it's Tozer, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he says he is. And he is who he says he is. And his claims. Yes, sir? Was you going to say something, Rusty? Now, we see that the condemnation of the world, these are very sobering words. He who believes in Him is not condemned. I love this word. The word condemn. I'm going to erase this. Everybody have this? You already have it in your notes. But when He says, He who believes in Him is not condemned, that word is in the present participle in the Greek. When it says, He who believes is not is is not condemned, that's in the present that means he's not condemned now, and he will not be condemned in the future. And we know what Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. There's no penal judgment for us because Christ has what? He's taken it. He himself has been condemned by God in his flesh as the sins of us were imputed to his account. And God pours out his fury on his son. So he who believes is not condemned. He's not condemned now and he will not be condemned in the future. But he who does not believe, if you don't believe, you are condemned already. That is in the past Tense. This is the present tense. And this is in the past tense. And that means you are condemned now, you were condemned, and you will be condemned in the future if you do not believe, okay? So that's the importance of that. It says, I'll read it again, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. The reason is for their unbelief. And then it demonstrates why they don't believe. And why don't men believe? Because why? Men are condemned. And point one under H, men are condemned because their deeds are evil and they love darkness and they hate Christ and will not come to Him. They practice evil and do not want it exposed. We'll get to this in John 7, 7. I've already quoted this verse, but Jesus says to His disbelieving family, talk about bringing a sword and separating family members. This is Jesus talking to His unbelieving family. His brothers didn't believe Him at this time. Jesus said to them, My time hasn't come yet, but your time is always ready. 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I tell the world that its works are evil. Right. Yet. It's it's the reason to persist in prayer and evangelizing. Very good. Thank you. That's why we pray for our lost family members every day until the day we pass on. And we pray that others who are alive will continue to pray for our brothers after we die, right? And we are doing that and committed to that to some of you in here. And we will continue to pray for our lost family members, even when our dear brothers and sisters go to glory. All right? We continue to pray. And that's the hope and confidence that God will plant seed of faith in them. And they will repent and they will turn. So we see that. Thanks for that comment. And so we see, uh, I like what it says in verse 21. Uh, we've talked about these things many times. Where everyone practicing evil hates the light, doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed to the light. We talked about that in the prologue in great detail. Verse 21 is uh, uh, the ca- notice the cause of this. Notice the cause of verse 21. The cause of verse 21 is God. Look what it says. But he who does the truth and comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The fact that they are done in God is the cause that leads to the change. And the change is repentance and turning. The deeds are exposed. God shows us in our hearts that we are sinners. We're, we're, we're Romans 1 through 3. We realize our need of a Savior. So the cause, it's done in God. And the effect is the change. Notice that the most important thing about that verse is that God is the cause and the effect is what the truth does. The truth Changes. We got the Word energized by the Spirit. And the Word energized by the Spirit is the truth that creates the change. And that is initiated and the cause by God. Everybody understand that verse? And that is in contrast to those who do not come to the light. Right? This is us if God... This is us... And this is the explanation for us because God did it. And if it wasn't for God doing it, we would be 20 and 21. We would hate the light. That's who we were. But God changes us, right? And we, we are new. Okay? Everybody get that? But you know, Don? Yes. As a believer, you can walk in darkness. And so it's not just those that are lost. This is something we need every day. Every day we need a Savior. Every day. And our pride shows up, and we don't want to admit that we've done something wrong. So we have to be corrected of all that. Don, there's another version of the Bible instead of saying done in God, it says rock in God, which means that, you know, it's that we got to be totally 
Wow, what the word would be out what it is is what you're saying is the potter takes this lump and he makes a vessel in honor. He shapes us and out comes someone who looks like Christ. It's him. It's him doing it. And Terry may get to that before we die in Romans 9, but he is going to talk about the potter and the clay. I say that in love. Terry's very thorough. We love him. Now, I want to talk about the word, what I want to talk about, and I want to talk about humility. And I need this very much. Uh, we all need this very much because we all have a certain a bit of knowledge in our little brains, and human nature is we get puffed up by that knowledge. And human nature is we don't like to be rebuked and... Uh, uh, I've had to confess my attitude sometimes about uh, being lovingly rebuked because it is good and wise people take rebuke and they learn from it, right? And our natural reaction is, what are you doing telling me this or that? We need to understand that. And God has convicted me of that over the days. And uh, uh, it's necessary. Not, not, uh, not pleasant, but necessary. Now let's talk about this whole concept of humility, and this is found in John the, in the, uh, John the Baptist's re- disciples' reaction to Jesus. And I want to talk about these things. And I've and get, everybody got lesson eight, and I'm going to try to to accomplish this. Uh, first thing, these are some life life lessons uh, about humility, and we've read the text, uh, and. Uh, And this is demonstrated in the life of John the Baptizer and his reaction and, and lessons we can learn from that. And the first thing I have is there is a there is a big difference between real humility and false humility. The disciples of John, I have no doubt they weren't true believers. They were faithful to the message. They had repented. I think they were believers and followers. But they still need to be progressed, and they still were being shaped by Christ and had lots to learn. There wasn't revelation like we have today. There wasn't a scripture they could read and open up, so they had to learn a lot by assimilation and what they saw in John, the baptizer, and what little they knew of Jesus. But notice the reaction of the uh, of the disciples and uh, uh, these things Jesus and his disciples came into the le- so they had one they had a specific purpose as I have in the notes uh, both of the groups had common interests both were baptizing calling for repentance cleansing of sins and turning to and preparing for the Christ both needed water so that's why they were in the same area most scholars think they were where the Jabbok and the Jordan River merged in a little town called Salim lots of water there so a lot of baptizing going on, need a lot of water, submersion, uh, needed water to do that, that's the kind of baptism it was, and so they are doing the same thing, they are, uh, they are, they are very sincere in their uh, commitment to, to, uh, to John the Baptist and to Jesus Christ, and Jesus was there, it says, and he remained with them. We see in chapter 4 that Jesus didn't baptize anybody, but His disciples baptized. But Jesus being there present tells us that He was pleased with it, 
and that it was he was on board with it, so to speak, and uh, they weren't doing anything wrong or, or improper. And it was necessarily preparatory, and it was external to what is going to happen internally, as we've talked about. But the problem was when the confrontation came, the confrontation showed the hearts of John the Baptist's followers. And it showed that their hearts weren't really, hum- uh, they weren't humble, but the, the humility was false in many ways. And first thing we see, and as MacArthur says, the, the, the disciples of John thought that the baptizing was a competition. MacArthur says they thought it was a competition. And they were, look what said, there arose a dispute between John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And this, we've talked about this before, the purification is the symbolic law that they, the Pharisees, added to. Uh, it was typified, as we talked about in chapter 2, about the water pots. And Jesus is taking the water pots the old way and He's bringing in a new covenant. And we talked about their old ritual laws and washing of the feet and hands. And so there is a dispute. Uh, I think the Pharisees are thinking they're adding something to the law that they didn't already add and they were zealous for the law. But uh, John's disciples, look what they said. Rabbi! He was with you, I think you need to emphasize you, beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified. He's baptizing and everybody's coming to Him. We're losing market share. Our ratings are going down. So there's a competition. And and the competition brings about envy. And the competition brings about jealousy. And the Scripture tells us that that is a striving that leads to division. And that leads to, and it is caused by carnality of the flesh and immaturity of the flesh. And so John's disciples were showing their true hearts. And it was very, uh, they were very sincere, but they were just new and they needed to grow, as, as Sally says. And we are not to judge them, but we are to empathize with them because we've been there too. But they showed uh, that, that they, they just misunderstood the purpose of the baptism. They misunderstood John's role, that he was just a preparer. John had told him, I'm not Christ. Don't look to me. Jesus is the Savior. And then the rest of these verses, he is explaining to them why they shouldn't be have this attitude of the heart that it's competition. It becomes a self-focus, doesn't it? And so they felt that way. And there's many scriptures to back these truths up. Uh, let's just look at a couple of them as we see this attitude uh, of the disciples. 
that they had uh, true humility. And I'm going to go here. True humility. And then we'll go false humility. But true humility is, is are these verses. Somebody look up Isaiah 57, 15. Somebody look up Psalm 34 and Psalm 51, 17. And I believe that's... Uh, a favorite psalm. I say that all the time, don't I? It's not my favorite. But maybe 34, 17, and 18. True humility. Uh, what it is and what it isn't. Uh, the disciples didn't display this, but John the baptizer does. First uh, Peter 5, 6. So who's got... Uh, Melanie, look up First uh, Peter 5, 6, will you please? The new, the new church member, Melanie. In uh, Melody, my wife, would you look up Psalm 34, 17, and 18, and 15, 17? And then uh, uh, who's got Isaiah 57, 15? True humility that John the Baptist is going to show in a second against the false humility and the misunderstanding of, of John the Baptist's role in Jesus' coming that expressed itself in comparison, competition, envy, jealousy. Who's got these true definitions of what humility are? And notice the, notice the uh, evidence, the consequence, the cause of what comes after true humility. Who's got High and Holy One who inhabits eternity dwells with those who are contrite in spirit. What does that mean to be humble and contrite in spirit? What does that mean? It's a word we don't use anymore. What does that word mean to be contrite in spirit? Pardon me? Absorbed. Absorbed? How do you mean? Uh, that is not the definition I'm looking for. But that may not be a wrong answer. The, the, the Holy Spirit dwells and absorbs us, and it causes us to be contrite in spirit. This is going to be sorry. Uh, contrite spirit is someone who is completely dependent on God, who trusts God, who leans not on his own understanding, who uh, whose lifestyle... Uh, method of operations will always call on His name and humble Himself and not exalt Him. It's the opposite of pride. A contrite heart is a humble heart who is dependent upon God, who understands His inability to come to God, please God, someone who deeply realizes His depravity of His heart and understands that His only hope is Christ. That's convicted, all part of that. Thank you. So a truly humble person is someone who is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning your own inability, your own spiritual condition, and you realize, as Sally said, we need a Savior every day because we have a proneness to wonder. 
So a contrite person will understand this about himself, that his heart is desperately wicked and he needs a Savior every day. That's what a contrite, spirited person looks like and acts like. And God is pleased with that. And He indwells those who have this kind of... And Melanie, read these two, please. Psalm 34, 17 and 18. So this also, as before you read this one, so these people are typified by a broken heart over their sins and they cry out to the Lord in humility and in dependence and trust. Okay, and then 51.17, which is David's repentant psalm, one of his repentant psalms. So God calls a contrite heart a living sacrifice. A reasonable act of our worship is to have a contrite, sacrificial, crying out to God heart. In 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Someone who humbles himself is in the parables. He sits in the back of the sanctuary he doesn't, uh, he doesn't assume that his place is in the front of the sanctuary. And Jesus says, you sit in the back and you're going to be moved to the front in one of the parables to teach humility and being a servant. And so that is what he looks at in a contrite heart. And that's what pleases him, a contrite heart. And this is true humility from false humility and uh, differentiates. Have I offended you? I'm just joking. I have to go give him a we have, we have to go follow. Oh! Beautiful. So, uh, everybody understand the first lesson, John's disciples, young, green, they were envious and they were jealous and they strove with each other. And we see this in Paul's epistles specifically to the Corinthians. We see this at Corinth. And we see this uh, at Ephesus where Timothy is a pastor. And we see this at the church of uh, Philippi. And, and Paul exhorts the people against the false humility and explains what real humility is. And then he tells us, look what he talks about. The church at Corinth was a book was a church that was immature and had many, 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 many errors in it. And Paul wrote the letter to correct their behavior. And one of the things among many was that the church of Corinth, they were proud and they were jealous and there was division amongst them and there was competition and comparison. Because what did the church at Corinth say? Let's look at 1 Corinthians. And I'll close on this and I'll do 2, 3, and 4. Uh, the church at Corinth... Uh, that is a demonstration of false humility, that is a demonstration uh, of what it leads to. Look at 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul is pleading to them in, in chapter 1, verse 10. Brothers, they're brothers in Christ, but they are new and they are immature. 
And Paul is pleading with them to correct their behavior. I plead with you, brethren, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Because they were saying, I'm Paul's, I'm Apollo's, I'm Peter's. And that there was a misunderstanding of who the loyalty was to. And they were loyal to people. And they were comparing people to people in their pride. Well, well, I'm a Peter. You can be of Jesus, but I'm... And so there was division and Paul was correcting that bad behavior. He corrects it uh, more in chapter 3 as he goes to another uh, illustration about sectarianism. And he pleads with them... Uh, and he, 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 he desires them not to be fleshy and walk in the flesh, but to be spiritual. And what they were doing is that they were, what were they doing? Chapter 3, verse 1 through the whole book, they were, they were talking about who they were ministering to. Would they, would they particularly minister to those who had money? And Jesus was talking to them, you don't, you don't, uh, show partiality to that, those who have money. And they were, and they were taking credit for their ministry. And Jesus was, uh, Paul was rebuking them. Uh, look at verse 5, chapter 3. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? We're ministers. As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Paulus watered, but God gives the increase. God gives the increase. We're fellow workers. We shouldn't strive or have this division like John's disciples were, but we are together. We should be the same mind, have the mindset of Christ. And, and the foundation is Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation. So the purpose of our ministry should be in humility and contrite spirit, always giving glory to Jesus. So... Paul encountered that. He encountered that in uh, chapter 12, the whole thing about gifts. Some would say, well, I have the gift of teaching. Some would say, I'm a pastor. And Paul said, those who are helpers and have the gift of helps, they're to be treated preciously. And God has given specific gifts to each person and within the body, and those gifts are specific and purposeful. And uh, just because you don't have a speaking gift where you're uh, famous or you're respected or whatever you think about, someone who helps, who's diligent, is just as important as those who are uh, have different gifts. So uh, the humility is not to compare, as Sheila said, but to not be envious of just because I'm not a pastor, just because I'm not an evangelist. Uh, we all have specific gifts, and we're, we, are, we are to be faithful to the gifts God has given us. Okay? So that's uh, something that we learn from John's disciples. Church of Philippi was the same way, uh, and we are to understand Paul corrects and teaches true humility from false humility. I'll stop there. Uh, we'll get to 2, 3, and 4, and we're going to look at a wonderful story of the Samaritan woman. And I want you to read chapter 4. And uh, the great word in there that Jesus must go to Samaria. And we are thankful that He went to Samaria because that typifies us. Right? Comments or questions? Questions?